0: You're listening to the Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. We're brought to you by LitHub, and you can hear us on LitHub Radio at lithub.com or in any of the many platforms where you listen to your podcast. My guest today is Papacia Bujak. Papacia was born in Istanbul, Turkey, to an American mother and a Turkish father, but she spent most of her childhood in Habertown, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philadelphia. Her B.A. is from Princeton University, and her M.F.A. is from Arizona State University. She teaches now at Florida Atlantic University, and you can find her stories and essays in a variety of journals, including Creative Nonfiction, Witness, and two of the stories from her latest collection, which is called the Trojan War Museum and Other Stories, were chosen for the O. Henry and Pushcart Prizes. That new collection of stories, *The Trojan War Museum*, has just been published by W. W. Norton. Oprah Magazine, uh, I was happy to see, hailed it as one of the ten books you should buy and read right now. How do you like that? <laughs> um, I like the addition of buy. <laughs> and what they said is, "A chorus of ghost girls, a young woman dispatched to Appalachia to tend her dying grandmother, Greek gods as conniving as teenagers." Bujack's luminous debut taps folklore and real life to flesh out complex characters with an agile, inventive hand. Publishers Weekly says, Bujack's remarkable, inventive, and humane debut marks her as a writer to watch. And if you don't believe them, Joan Silber says of this remarkable collection, what a beautiful, wildly imagined book. The Trojan War Museum gives us stories with branching paths and they resemble fairy tales, historical accounts, news reports, and dreams. This is fiction of great great originality and great delight. My favorite I think, comes from Lydia, Lydia Kiesling, who the author of Golden State, who says this is a truly lovely, truly surprising book Papacha's Buchak's stories are narratively precise, and they are also beautiful vignettes on human culture, deftly probing the fissures and pressure points of history and bringing up new forms like the sponge divers in one of her stories. This collection absolutely glows with with life. And what better comparison uh, can be made than what Andrea Barrett says of Popatia's book? She says, Popatia shares with Jumpola Lahiri the gift of fusing distinctive subject matter with an unusually restrained and elegant voice. This marvelous debut collection is truly rare in its range and depth, its deft mastery of history and myth, and its fearless storytelling. I have to tell you something. There aren't very many debuts that come with that kind of heft of literary criticism. And I have to say that I'm with Oprah. You guys have to run out and buy this book right now, right?
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> it's I, I have to admit it. Every time someone – it is my debut book. It is my first book. But I finished my MFA 20 years ago. So, I have been writing a pretty long time. And so, every one time someone says debut, I feel like – Oh really? <laughs> I guess it is my debut.
0: Well, and I know, you know, I know just from from reading up a bit about you that you won the O. Henry Prize, or your work, you were included in the O. Henry Prize a number of years ago, as well. I think that story was what around two thousand and five, I want to say, or six.
1: Yeah, it was. I think a little bit later, but um, the that was the first story I wrote for the book. And I had sort of set this vision for myself of I really hope to publish a book of stories. And I know that means I need sort of certain things to happen. And a part of me just feels so astonished that with the first story I wrote that, you know, I got the O. Henry, which is one of the things that I felt like needed to happen because that triggered agents paying attention. And and Well, I also love the story
0: is you were working... You had prior to that worked in publishing, right?
1: Yeah, that was, my first job was in publishing, and I did the what was then the Radcliffe Publishing Course, and I worked for William Morrow, and then I worked for Anchor Doubleday,
0: which and, and Doubleday published the uh, O. Henry Prizes as well. Yes,
1: yeah, that was actually one of my things, where my cubicle mate and I would, you know, we had charge of the book room where all the Anchor books are stored, and we would go through all, we would share the various anthologies, which was always really fun because I'd read them you know, all my adult life.
0: <laughs> well, you know, so many people have, have weighed in on this book and I read from a number of the early reviews of the book and they describe your book in so many different ways and I'm wondering how you would describe your book and how you uh, would characterize your stories.
1: I had a couple of conscious goals. One was that I had wanted to write bigger short stories than I had previously written. I'd before I'd written short stories in grad school and then I worked on a novel. The novel did not ultimately work out, but I felt like in working on the novel I learned how to stay with a, a narrative longer and to write a bigger story in terms of scope. And so my my failed novel actually taught me how to write short stories, I think, because I wanted to try writing stories that were as big as possible within the story form. And then the other thing that to my mind holds them together is, I don't know that readers necessarily can see this, but for me, each of them is some intersection between my American life, which really is my dominant life, and the way that Turkishness pops up in my life. So a lot of the origin stories for the individual pieces um have to do with some random moment of someone reference you know i read a newspaper article about turkey or my dad would tell me some story about turkey or i would my friend randomly mentioned the automaton that was known as the turk and i would mentally go oh maybe that's a story maybe that's a story Um, and so so for each of the stories i can find this intersection of i'm going about my american ways and Turkey pops up, and so I've tried to embrace that in, in so, the story. So, let's
0: talk about that intersection. I think that would be a, a really interesting thing. So, tell me uh, tell me about your life's journey. Tell me what it is that brought you here tonight. Tell, tell me about your your, your parents who seem to have such an influence on you, and yeah. then the dislocation you must have felt when you left and moved and came here.
1: You know, I really didn't because I was four, so I don't really remember Turkey very much, which I think actually drives a lot of my curiosity. When I s- started writing, I was always drawn to writing. My mom loves books, my dad loved movies, so they were both big story people. And so that for sure is a factor. I did not expect ever to really write about Turkey because I, I, worry, I worry, you know, I don't speak Turkish. I grew up in the U.S. I've spent very little time with Turks other than my father. Um, and so I didn't want to write as kind of a American tourist in Turkey. And it took me a long time to realize that, oh, I can research this. I can research my own past. I can research the country. I can research the stories. Um, and that's when I finally started writing about turkey so i think i always i mean i definitely always wanted to write and i knew i always wanted to write um but it took me a long time to stop resisting writing about turkey and stop worrying so much i still worry about writing about (laughs) turkey tell tell us a little bit
0: about your dad so
1: so my my um parents met in the u.s my dad came to the u.s on a fulbright to go to the wharton school which he did not graduate from Uh, but my mom ended up meeting him at a dance my dad lived at the international house in philadelphia where a lot of the foreign graduate students live and they needed women at the dances so my mom and her friend went to go dance at the international house her friend ended up married to an iranian gentleman and my mom ended up married to my dad Um, so that's that's how they met but she you know. When she finished college, she moved to Turkey with him because he went back um, to do his military service. That's where they got married. My mom lived there nine years. um, So even though I have very little memory of it and I don't speak Turkish, my mom, the American knows Turkey very well and she speaks Turkish. But then, so we moved, my brother was six and I was four and it was really, I think time to make a decision of, well, if, if they're going to go to America, it's going to be easiest when the kids are little. So that's, that's when we came here and I, I really, it was not a rough transition for me. Apparently, I forgot everything I knew of Turkish within two weeks, <laughs> I was just, I was here, but, I was fine. But did
0: they join a Turkish community here in there, t- outside of Philadelphia? No, at
1: all, they really didn't. Um, and n- nowadays, it's very easy to find Turks. I, they, there are definitely communities. And apparently in New Jersey, there was a pretty big community even then, but I think for whatever reason, when we first moved, maybe that wasn't so available and then maybe my dad didn't seek it out. I don't know. But I I really I knew my dad and that was it.
0: <laughs> but he would tell stories about his growing up and it's like, did you yeah. know his parents at all?
1: Uh, So my grandfather passed away before I was born, but I did meet my grandmother on various, you know, she came over to the US and we went over to visit sometimes, but not a lot. She didn't speak English. I didn't speak Turkish. We kind of spoke French together. Um, So I, I knew them. And what's funny to me is a lot of my dad's stories that now I can see were clearly based in growing up in the Middle East or the, in the culture that he did, to me just seemed like my dad's stories. Like, I've, I feel like the key example is my dad as an expression of like frustration would go, Allah oh, Allah. And to me, that was just like something my dad did. He went, Allah oh, and. I learned, like by watching TV and reading the subtitles of a Turkish show that he was saying Allah, Allah,' which ah, is a very common thing sure. for someone to say just as we might you know say Christ as a expression um, so that to me is key of how like you know my dad was very Turkish, but i didn 't really know it you know I just I, he was he was the one example, so i couldn 't always parse out what was Turkish about him.
0: So so my wife came over from Russia with her parents who were immigrants as well, and both of them were. And I know that she felt a very strong need and desire to both get very close to them and separate from them at the same time, to seem as American as she possibly can. could at the time. Was that something that you felt as well?
1: You know... Um... That's interesting. I, she came about the same age yeah. you
0: were, actually.
1: I, I mean, I think maybe partly, because my dad was also, like I I didn't have the sort of immigrant parent experience of having to translate for your parents or any of that. Why? My dad is perfect English. He knew American pop culture up and down. Um, So I think it was just very easy for me to be very American. It was a very easy transition. And yeah, I just, uh, and my parents, they would, in recent years, make fun of me for my inability to speak Turkish, which I blame completely on them. Of course. But they would, you know, they they almost have me perform when they'll say, oh, <laughs> you know, they find it very funny when I mispronounce Turkish words. So they would have me perform them in some sense. Um, but yeah, somehow I got old and never quite learned right, Turkish. So-
0: so you you it's been you say that it's unusual for you to think of this as a debut or you get you find it funny because it's been 20 years or so. So tell me about those 20 years. Yeah. What was happening? You were writing a novel, were you teaching as well during yeah, that? Yeah, I mean I
1: think what basically happened that um may, i'm gonna use the word set me back in terms of publishing a book is i got a job right away out of my mfa program which i was a visiting professor at minnesota state mankato you know i'm i graduated and i'm interviewed and i moved to mankato all within months and um it was pretty unusual for some i had a couple of publications story publications and i it was pretty unusual to get a job, a teaching job that fast. And then I ended up teaching a year at Oberlin College, again, without having published a book. And I somehow accumulated all this great teaching experience that I think helped me get a tenure track job at FAU, um, all without a book, which is a little bit unusual. And I was publishing individual stories and essays that whole time, but but for whatever reason. I had not um, prioritized turning those into a book. And then I worked a long time on the novel and, you know, I signed with an agent and we sent it out and it just never quite, at this point, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that my younger stories are not in a book. I'm glad that novel is not out there. But I got tenure based on just these magazine publications and and I always maintain that like that actually allowed me to write this book of stories at the pace that I needed to 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 take my time with it and to try to write these longer stories that I, you know, I really hoped would be deeper than things I'd written in the yeah, past. Yeah, in
0: some ways it's kind of an old way of the way publishers and editor, uh, writers and uh, used to work with editors. Even though you didn't have one specific editor, you, you had your stories in magazines mm. and you wrote for a variety of editors, but it allowed you to sort of find your voice in an interesting way.
1: I, I think that's true. And I think it just very basically allowed me to go slowly. And I'm just someone that needs to let a story accumulate. I don't get a you know, great plot in my mind right away. I, I need to, and I also wanted to do a lot of research for most of the stories and that did slow me down. So the fact that I had tenure and I could not rush to do a book, um, let me take 10 years on a book and and I, it, I, I feel okay about it. <laughs> I mean, I feel a little sad about the lost years on the novel, but I feel like that's all of that built to the book. Um,
0: well, you write with such imagination and such style and 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 such a variety of of styles. Um, as you were going through this process, as you took the time, you're obviously a remarkable reader. And we can get to that a little later on in terms of who you read. But at the time that you were writing, can can you think of early influences? You know, that that yeah. inform your writing style and, and your sensibility.
1: So one thing that I know happened was I was, at the same time that I was working on these stories, I you know I was teaching both graduate and undergraduate classes. And in the undergraduate workshops, I would pretty often teach the same classic stories. i teach Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, and I'd teach um, Girl by Jamaican Kincaid, and i teach... Uh, all these stories, some of these Blues by James Baldwin that I studied over and over again. And I realized that um, that was the standard that I would want to aim for. You know, I think a lot of times when you're just reading contemporary stories, which so many of which, of which are fantastic, but um, reading these like true classics of the form, I was just really thinking about stories a lot. And, and I s- stopped thinking about the book as a whole and more about, oh, how can I try to get each individual story to go as far as I can I can take it? So that was definitely an influence. Just I had these kind of greatest hits that I was reading a lot. And then I, I really liked the book Dangerous Laughter by Stephen Milhauser, um, which he writes really expansive stories. So that was a model for me once I had the book overall going. And similar, you knew you
0: could take chances in the form. Yeah,
1: I think that's right. I think that um, I didn't feel like I had to be realist. I knew I could write longer. He also uses exposition a lot, and um, he he's not afraid of making it sound like a tale as opposed to immersing us in scene. So he was a um, big influence. Also the book Servants of the Map by Andrew Barrett. So when I got the Andrew Barrett blurb, that was big for me <laughs> I <bet. laughs> because she, I felt like reading that book and the title story especially m- opened up the idea of bring, how to bring research into the story and not you know, be afraid of letting a story be historical. So that those were all big for me. Also, when I was going through grad school, Amy Bender and Kelly Link and eventually Karen Russell were um, kind of big on the scene and they were big influences in terms of the magic realism and uh, women writers doing weird things, which I tend to like a lot. So I, I can actually, like for every single story, I have basically an encyclopedia of influence that I could keep going and that's, going.
0: No, that's wonderful. So each story... Has its own kind of uh, backstory, you might say. It
1: does, and I actually would literally um, sometimes because you need to find ways to stay inspired. I would uh, make a list of stories that I wanted to be overt influences on the story, and that I would just think about. Okay, I know I'm taking from this, so how can I make sure I'm not just trying to like be a lesser imitation? Um, so I I would have a reading list and sometimes it'd be books too. I'd have more of a reading list. Um, I'm a huge Michael and Dodgy fan. So I can pick out like there's a paragraph. I talk about this in other places, but there's a paragraph in an English patient that has hugely influenced my work. And I know it's that single paragraph where he lists the wins and that was
0: We share that we share that love. One of the earliest books, as a bookseller, that I championed in my own store, was Running in the Family, which I thought was, which I still think is one of the greatest uh, kind of lyrical memoirs that is out there.
1: Yeah, that voice. So, so actually, one of my uh, favorite memories happened right here in Books and Books when Michael Andagi was reading from Cat's Table. And I went up to have my book signed and I had my name Papatia written on the post-it note on the book for him to copy. And he looks at my name and he goes, great name. And he looks at me and he looks back at the name and he peels off the post-it note and goes, I'm keeping this. <laughs> so I read all of Warlight looking for my name, <laughs> no, but it was not it was, in there. I know, I know, but I know. That, was, that is great. That was one of my best uh, moments. You never know. It yeah, yeah. can show
0: up somewhere <laughs> and it just might.
1: I didn't tell him that Orhan Pamuk does have a Papaya in one of his novels because uh, I thought that might discourage yeah. him.
0: <laughs> and, and tell me your relationship on the Pamuk. How, what did, did you read him? I mean, was were you drawn to him because of your, yes. your background?
1: So, um, it's interesting. When I worked at Anchor, I was an editorial assistant, but they, um, I think it was when Black Book came out and Anchor at the time was, and still does a lot of paperbacks. Um, so they looked at the hardcover as Maybe you know? Do we want to buy a Black Book? And I immediately volunteered to read it because, of course, I was Turkish. And that book at that moment went so over my head. I was like, <laughs> I don't know if he's going to be big in the United States. <laughs> and you know, the, wisely, the editors ignored me. And I think they did make a um, bid on it, but they didn't end up publishing him. But of course, he did win the Nobel Prize. And I eventually um, figured out that oh yeah, I can learn a lot from him. He, he's of. My dad's generation, and he went to the same high school that my dad did. So I actually was really uh, interested. Did they know each other? Did they? No, he's my dad was a little older. um, But there was a good moment where my dad got to hear him read and they got to swap some stories. Um, It was so
0: interesting for me because we presented him at Books and Books early, early, early on. It was in the like mid 80s, maybe. And it was for one of his first books that I think Knopf published or Pantheon published. And, And you know, I was a little nervous, but I, you know, it's amazing, you know, in a city like Miami, there's a very, very large the Turkish Tur- community. Yeah, they're out there. And it was basically a Turkish audience. People That's who amazing. came out yeah. to hear him, who knew him, who yeah. respected him and revered him at the time.
1: My parents happened to be visiting Turkey when the Nobel Prize announcement happened, and people went bananas. And, you know, really, uh, they brought me home the newspaper, and it's a huge headline, um, and s- there is, a at that time, <laughs> a real national pride for him. And so when I read his nonfiction book, Istanbul, that actually really, I think, had the biggest impact on me because I did feel like, oh, I'm starting to see a little more. Like, oh, this is the world that my dad knew.
0: Well, it's interesting. We can get into your stories. And I, I can see now that I hear that you've talked about the kind of research you do, you did and you do and that you kept stylistic um, models in mind as you wrote them. Uh, Tell me about the history of girls, for instance. Um,
1: Yes. Tell me
0: about that one. Where did that, the the history you had to do, the research you had to do, and where that came from?
1: So that originally, um, there was a newspaper article that was about a girls' school that um, there was an explosion and, you know, it was horrible, and... When the newspaper, it was, for whatever reason, it was international news. And um, when that happened, my mom, who had taught in a girl's school in Turkey, said, oh, you know, they're saying they don't know why the school blew up. But obviously it was the gas. Like, you know, everybody would know that it was the gas. And my mom taught there in the 60s and 70s, you know, and this <laughs> explosion was happening 30 years later. 40 years later. And my feeling was, well, so this problem has existed for 30 to 40 years and nobody has done a, anything about it. Um, and my mom was right. It did come out eventually that I think it was propane um, explosion. And so that was the core, like, I think both of those things I thought, well, maybe I'd like to write about a girl's school. I, um, I, f- a lot of my favorite books are the sort of Girls Coming of Age, Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson, Annie John by Jamaica KK. Those are like my pantheons. So I wanted to write about the age. I like the idea of writing about a group. I wanted to do the first person plural. I just, as a exercise, I wanted to try writing in a wee voice. So that was one of my assignments. I did not end up doing that much research for that story
0: but you did put your imagination to work. Yeah, I mean, it was the whole notion of the ghosts visiting the girls. Yeah,
1: that probably was the story that was most influenced by, by say, writers like Kelly Link, who were um, doing that kind of. I love that surreal. story, but then
0: I also loved, I loved. Um, Oh, God, I loved, I loved them all. But I also loved the Ottoman Arabesque, too, which you know, which is a little bit erotic and kind of interesting. That was
1: my big research story that I really, um, you know, when that ended up being published in Kenyan Review. And they actually, one of the editors said, are you sure this shouldn't be nonfiction? And I was like, no, it cannot be nonfiction because <laughs> I made up a lot of things about this guy. Um, but that was the story where I really kind of discovered that it was fun for me to do research. and What well, tells the story
0: of a 19th century ambassador, right?
1: Yeah, and so I I like lists. I'm one of these people that has all the books that are like 1,001 books to read before you die and 1,001 places to go. And so I have the one that's 1,001 paintings or pieces of art to see. And so I was just turning through it and uh, the painting, um, The Origin of the World is in there and I didn't know anything about it. And it is a very striking painting <laughs> and, uh, when I read the little summary in this book it it referenced this Ottoman ambassador who had an erotic collection of art, and they do they do in in the book reference it as erotic collection of art, which when I researched it, it really that you know that definition of erotic seemed to come from the fact like this orientalism of of you know well, oh, this Ottoman fellow surely it's a something sexy about it, but it it wasn't. You know, these paintings are classic most of them, <laughs> classic paintings that you would not necessarily call erotic. There's nudity, but but that basically just realizing that he was being conceived of in this way that was not quite right, I feel like that opened the door to writing a story because I felt like, well, I can write my way towards correcting the record here and, and saying, well, you know, why is he considered an erotic collector of art as opposed to a collector of what turned out to be some classic paintings that people now revere um so that opened a door for me but then i just i had this idea that i wanted to write a story in stories you know people are always writing novels and stories and I thought i'm going to write a story in stories and so i just kept inserting all of these sort of some tales that i made up but a lot of tales that i was retelling or or things that i was retelling from history um and so it just ended up being a story that got built out of all these different angles and the um Alex Murto who did the cover design for my book he is the one that came up with this idea of making it a museum exhibit on the cover and i yeah. will forever love him for it cuz i didn't have, i never thought of a story collection as like a museum exhibit but that's exactly what I was doing in the book. And so that he picked up on that and then put it on the cover. Was-
0: I also think of it, I mean, it's also like a multifaceted sort of diamond. I mean, where you see all yeah. the different planes and you can see through it. I mean what you've done in this is really, really so special. And I mean, and you bring in, you bring in character, you bring in the Armenian genocide, you write about, you write about, um, Turkish wrestlers, if I remember, there are just so many interesting characters that stayed with me and stay with the reader. Talk about, you have to talk a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about the, um, The title story, the Trojan War Museum.
1: Yeah, I like to say that my readers so far seem to mainly be divided between people who favor History of Girls and people who favor Trojan War Museum, and my agent favored History of Girls and my editor (laughs) favored Trojan War Museum. Um, But so that story, I had actually at some point thought I would write a book about Troy, Um, And my interest in Troy seemed largely to come from the fact that my dad took my brother to Troy to visit and he didn't take me. (laughs) And so I felt like that wasn't fair. So I was gonna write this book. And uh, it seemed natural for a story collection to follow this idea of the layers of Troy. But then as it was taking me you know, 10 years to write one book, I thought maybe I won't write a whole nother book about (laughs) Troy but just write one story. And I had written a craft essay on setting. It, it always kind of uh, bothered me a little bit when people would say, oh, the setting is a character in a story, but they I would feel like they didn't really mean it, that, that they were just saying, oh, setting is important in the story as opposed to saying, oh, setting changes in the ways that characters change in the story or setting has a history in the way that characters have in a history. So so,
0: to tell, tell us what a craft essay is.
1: So, Basically, it's just a essay that focuses on write, writing technique in some way. And so I live in kind of MFA world. And so that's a whole genre that has sprung up now. Um, and so I wrote this essay that was about how I thought it would be really interesting that instead of having a story structured by, um, you know, the arc of conflict and crisis and all that, rather just think of it as, well, what if the setting was the driving Um, structure for the story that we see a setting undergoing change and going into crisis or whatever it is. And so I wrote the essay without ever having tried to write a story like that. And I thought, well, you know, okay, this is now my, I guess I have to try to do this. And so I had this idea that I wanted to write about Troy. And this Troy has its layers. And so I thought, okay, this is the, this is the place to do it, to write about the setting. But then I am a big museum person. I really just, whatever city I go to, I like to go to the museums. And I was at a history museum thinking about, wouldn't it be nice if we had, you know, videos of Troy and we could know what really happened. And I pulled out my little notebook and I wrote down Trojan War Museum while I was, you know, standing in some museum. And um, then I knew like, oh, I want to write about museums. And it sort of all followed from there because it was like, well, you got to write about war if you're doing this and you got to. Go read the Iliad, which I had never read if you're going to do this. Um, so that story got built that way. And that was one that I really had to write it sentence by sentence. Um, I also, I um, there's a book of poems by James Richardson called Vectors and Aphorisms, I think, which is, it's just full of very clever one-liners. And I had that in my head that I wanted to have some one-liners in my story. And so Took a long time to write some of those, but that's where a lot of the voice of Trojan War Museum came from is, is James Richardson's one liners idea. Um, and uh, there's a, there were a lot of component parts to that story. I mean, I do embrace serendipity. There's a Zadie Smith um, craft essay where she talks about how when you're writing a novel, suddenly it seems like everything uh, fits into your novel, everything that you encounter in life um connects your novel and I decided to actually just embrace that idea and that when things popped up in my life I would see if it could fit in fit in the story and so I I was literally walking through the library at FAU and I saw this book with an orange cover and I pulled it out and was like what's this and it was about Apollo and it was a very weird book I still don't quite get it but it had the that voice of the descriptions of Apollo the sun god and far darter and all this interesting language that I just thought, okay, I'm going to do that for every character of the gods in in this story.
0: Well, the gods are, you know, the gods are, you have them, you know, really, really, it's, they come alive as they ruminate about what's going on, you know, as they roam and ruminate. But did any of the stories present themselves to at any point thinking, you know, I want to take this longer. I want it to become a novel. I want it to be, become something more.
1: No. And <laughs> I think that well, that's was... that's fortunate. More. Yeah. <laughs> but other... Editors frequently told me otherwise that, you know, when I was sending things to magazines on my own before I signed with my agent, um, I would sometimes get a response of, well, this seems like a novel idea to me and and I can be pretty stubborn. I I felt like those responses often had to do with a preconceived notion of a short story as a certain length and a certain structure and, um, I was not interested in having stories that were fully unified. I wanted them to be a little messy. I have one story that starts with like a two-page list of things at the um, World's Fair. And, you know, of course, editors said to me, well, maybe you should cut this list. And I thought, no, I think I'll keep it. (laughs) I know it's a little bit long, but that's that's kind of the point to immerse you in it. You're great with lists. I I love lists. I know you do. That comes from Andaji. That's that list of wins. He did me in with that list.
0: (laughs) So, you know, you're, you're I mean, I, I listened to your story and it is a beautiful coming together of so many things, the fact that you were given the time to be able to write as you saw fit where you didn't feel like you were under the pressure of having, to, you know, of having a big advance that you had to work toward or, mm. you know, having some kind of internal... Something that made you squeeze something out of you that you didn't want to come out of you in a sense. I don't know if that makes yeah. any sense no, to at all. I feel but very grateful. It's what I feel like when I'm talking to yeah. you, and then and then serendipitously, your your agent is one of one of my favorite people in all time, Julie Bear, and yeah. and she has such an eye for recognizing talent.
1: So when I um, before I started this collection, and then when I was in fact trying to write that novel. I published a story in Glimmer Train, and it was right when I'd started at FAU, so it was maybe 2003. Um, And Julie Bear at the time was like a beginning agent, and she called me up and said, oh, I saw this story in Glimmer Train, I really loved it, can you send me whatever else you're working on? And I had my grad school stories, and I had the beginning of this novel that ultimately would not work. And I I talked to her on the phone and I just loved her right away and i sent her the st- stuff and she called me back and said well this is a little disappointing <laughs> and I, and honestly as as sad as i was i recognized the truth in what she was saying i knew that the story that would have been in glimmer train was better than the things that i had sent her and and she said with the novel she said i just can't tell yet it's too too early um and i i I think a lot of writers are this way. We're really grateful when we trust someone to tell us the truth, even if it's a hard truth. And so she didn't sign me, but I forever after that was like, Julie Bear is gonna be my agent. <laughs> um, and I don't know if this is like a horrifying story, or a good story, but so when I, I all along I was keeping track of her. She was becoming a star. She was becoming this agent who's so good at selling stories. So I, I was just going, oh my God, she, you know, she's perfect, she's perfect. I'm coming for you, Julie. (laughs) Um, But when I finished the book, she was the first person I queried and she didn't answer. And I thought, okay, I'm going to move on. I'm going to query other people. And then one of my colleagues, um, Andy Furman, who's a nonfiction writer at FAU, he knew Elizabeth Weed, who works at the same agency, the book group, which Julie had started on her own a couple of years prior to that, um, or that these women had started together. Julie and a group of these other agents had started together. And he said you should query Elizabeth Weed and I said, "Well, I already queried Julie Bear and she didn't answer and I, you know, I don't know if and I kept putting him off. Finally I queried Elizabeth Weed. <laughs> Elizabeth Re- Weed writes me back right away and says, "I think you might be right for my colleague Julie Bear." <laughs> and so I just stayed very quiet and said, "That would be great if she would look at my stuff. I'd be so happy." Um and she happens to be married to Colson Whitehead during the time that Julie had my stuff, the Underground Railroad won the Pulitzer Prize. So I'm convinced that she was just in a really good mood when she was reading my manuscript um, because her husband had just won the Pulitzer Prize. And so she she read it really fast. She contacted me right away. She was willing to sell just a book of stories, not try to sell a a novel. Um, So it it was really literally a dream come true. And not
0: only that, it ended up, at Norton, with one of the finest literary editors that there is, in Elaine Mason. As yeah, well.
1: and again, another gift because Elaine has this list that is full of books about the Middle East, and so she really was the perfect editor to understand my book. She'd been to Turkey. She'd, um, I'd read a lot of the books that she'd published, and she'd read a lot of the books that I researched, and um, so I was just it was perfect it was absolutely well perfect. the
0: importance of agents and and editors are often not um are, are not acknowledged enough and i think the two of them are two of the best and and they 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 recognized your talent and they've so beautifully published this book um it's it's remarkable and, and to see the attention it's getting i am so gratified that it is it and you must feel the same I way. do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really been a great experience um, in terms of every step of the way they let me do the story. Like, you know, they gave me good feedback. They um, helped me sh- shape these stories and sharpen them. Um, but they never tried to turn me into a different kind of writer. And they never tried to make me a novelist, which hopefully one day I will be. But um, they they really looked at the stories i wrote and they responded to the stories i wrote as opposed to anything else and that you know you're you're kind of told that that won't happen when you're a short story writer you're really pushed to and- The novel and everything. Well, we
0: can't wait to see what comes next, but I'm going to blindside you a little bit and ask you to read a short part Mm -hmm. of one of the stories if you would. I know that we didn't prepare for this beforehand, but I live at the ready for this. (laughs) All right, so if you can read a little section, do
1: you have a preference or I can just uh,
0: well, you know, I'm one of those in the middle where I liked both of the stories, but (laughs) but I think if you start. I'd like to hear you read a little bit from uh, The History of Girls, actually.
1: Great. I will read the beginning to The History of Girls. While we waited, we were visited by the ghosts of the girls who had already died, those who were closest to the explosion, in the kitchen sneaking butter and bread when the gas ignited, the ones who died immediately, in a sense without injury, the girls who died explosively, The dead girls waited with us amidst the rubble, our heads pillowed on it, our arms and legs canopied by it, some of us punctured by it. The rubble was heavy, of course. The weight of it made us wonder what happened to the softer things. Our sheets and blankets, our letters from home, our Korans, our class notes, the slips of paper we exchanged throughout the day, expressing our affections and disaffections for each other, for our teachers, for the rituals of our contained life. What about the curtains on our windows, we thought? The stories and poems we read to each other at night or the ones we kept private folded in our pockets. What about our pockets? Our uniforms, our gym skirts, our headscarves and stockings, the two soft pillows we always complained of, the ones the oldest girls hoarded, sleeping with three or four stacked under their cheeks even though their heads sank into the two soft centers and their necks ached in the morning. The explosion, it seemed, turned everything to stone. Except us. We were soft then, softer than we ever were.
0: Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you, Papacha, for being on the Literary Life.
1: Thank you. This is a great pleasure.